Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show today, but first, take a second to make sure you've subscribed to our show wherever you're listening to podcasts. It's the best way to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. Thanks. Okay, let's get started. Our guest today, Sandra Abravaya, co-founded the nonprofit group I Am ALS with her husband, Brian Wallach. Brian was just 37 when he found out he had ALS. Sandra is his main caregiver. Today, they advocate for ALS research and support the ALS community while raising their two young daughters. You may have heard ALS called Lou Gehrig's disease after the famous baseball player who had the condition decades ago. You may have even seen viral videos of the ice bucket challenge a few years ago for ALS awareness. ALS steals a person's physical abilities while leaving their mind intact. It currently has only two FDA approved treatments and there's no cure. And the condition is always fatal, usually within two to five years after diagnosis. As devastating as ALS is, caregiving is also needed by people with many other conditions. It's often done by a loved one who wants to help, even though they aren't trained for it. Caregiving can be deeply rewarding, and it can also be very stressful, especially if you also have young kids or a job. You can end up burning the candle at both ends. So if you take care of a loved one who's ill, you'll want to listen in as Sandra shares how she juggles it all and about her work as an ALS advocate. Sandra, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. I'm very excited to talk to you. You have so many roles. You're a caregiver, you're a mother, a wife, a leader, and an advocate in the ALS community. But we want to start by talking about you. For our listeners who don't know you yet, how would you like to introduce yourself? I probably would start by saying that uh, I'm a first-generation American. I'm the daughter of two immigrants who are from Istanbul, Turkey. Um, I come from a family of scientists, research scientists. My uh, parents uh, came to the US to get their PhDs and then their postdocs. And so my, my whole life has been steeped in the scientific and medical community, even though professionally I, I chose a different path. What was their area of study? My mom's a molecular biologist uh, and she's spent much of her career in the HIV sector working on uh, diagnostics. And then she focused for the last year and a half on uh, COVID diagnostics. And then wow. my father is a chemical engineer and has been primarily focused on clean energy technology and exploratory research. So you were already very familiar with medical research and scientific research uh, communities and ins and outs of all those processes. Yeah, well, you know, when I was getting ready for heading off to college and thinking about my own career, I was really passionate about theater. Um, and so <laughs> I think my two immigrant scientifically oriented parents were very confused how <laughs> that all happened. But it turns out I did theater and then politics and then government and nonprofit work. And then lo and behold, here I am back where they started wow. <laughs> in science. It took a journey to get there, but here you are. Yeah, I guess I couldn't get away from it. So, right. Yeah. Well, how did you and Brian meet? 
Well, Brian and I met working in politics. So we met in 2008 on the Obama general election. Uh, and he, Brian, had been on this campaign for a long time. I can't even remember if Brian was like, I don't know. He was in one of the first 50 people to join the campaign from the very get go. Oh, wow. So, yeah, he'd been on since the very early days. And I had been working in government for some time. And at the time I was serving as the press secretary to Senator Dick Durbin, who is an incredible leader. I joined the Obama campaign for the general election. So Brian and I ended up meeting up in New Hampshire where in the general election, he was the New Hampshire political director and I was the New Hampshire communications director. So yes. Okay. Uh, we- <laughs> <laughs> The uh, yeah, often told campaign uh, romance story. There you go. Well, when did you know that he was the one? Well, uh, I I mean, Brian is a very cute guy, so I mean, <laughs> that helps. I was, yeah, I was, I was kind of intrigued from the get go, but we went. We ended up working together a lot because as the political director on a campaign, your job is to elevate the candidate on local radio and TV and um, with, you know, print stories. And so ultimately the people who do that are your surrogates in the state. And so Brian's job was to cultivate relationships and support with state legislators and state representatives. And my job was to get all his people in the press. So uh, we ended up having a lot of fun working together. Brian thought he was really good at things that he wasn't always that good at, uh, like <laughs> writing press releases um, and, uh, you know, navigating, you know, sound bites and, and whatnot. But he's he's obviously incredibly smart and capable. And so, I don't know, we, we had a good back and forth, a good uh, relationship where we constantly challenged each other in a work setting and, you um, and, you know, realized it was just fun to generally hang out. So <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. great. Well, it's, you guys probably worked closely together. So you probably had a lot of time to to hang out, get to know each other. Yeah, that's why when everyone's like, oh, did you like have a first date? I'm like, I don't even it's like, <laughs> what was the first date? I don't know. It was like the first 400 hours we spent working together until midnight, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a job. I mean, that requires so much time and energy, um, both from a, like a mental standpoint and a physical standpoint too. Yes, absolutely. So when did Brian first notice the early symptoms of ALS that something just wasn't right? You know, how did, and then how did he find out that, you know, ALS was, was causing those symptoms? Yeah, well, you know, I didn't know when Brian first noticed the symptoms. Um, at the time, we had a two-year-old and I was pregnant with our second daughter. And um, Brian didn't actually even mention these symptoms to me because I guess they didn't feel important or noteworthy to him. He thought maybe he was just kind of tired because his left hand was cramping. Sometimes he had trouble holding a pen. Um, he was working really long hours as a federal prosecutor in the gang and violent crimes division in the city of Chicago. He was also managing the lion's share of like the household duties because, you know, I was a bit spent and, you know, needed a lot of help, um, as 
the pregnancy continued and I got more and more tired. So it just, we, we all kind of, Brian assumed that he just wasn't feeling energetic. Um, right. Then, I mean, you had a two-year-old and you were working full-time. It's easy to see how you'd make that connection. Yeah, exactly. And even when we actually had our second daughter and we were in the hospital with her, he he actually went to the doctor because he had a cough that I was worried about. So the reason he went to see a doctor in the first place actually didn't have anything to do with the symptoms that ultimately were linked to ALS. Wow. So how did that come up? I mean, just a general exam and the doctor kind of spotted some, some warning signs. Yeah. I mean, Brian was trying to channel me at his doctor's appointment where I say like, you always tell the doctor everything that's going on, even if it's not the reason you went in. And so when he was there to talk about his cough, he mentioned the weakness in the left hand and the cramping. And, um, and then I think, you know, he, he then also mentioned some tremors in his left arm that at the time were pretty subtle, but you know, the, the primary care doctor took a look at all that and, you know, immediately booked Brian an appointment with a neurologist um, out of an abundance of caution. And then Brian went to that appointment with the neurologist, but I didn't put two and two together. He didn't say anything along the lines of, hey, I had this like normal primary care doctor appointment, but the doctor noticed something really troubling potentially. And so I'm going to see this neurologist and he rushed me in. Like that was not the conversation. Right. The conversation was just, Hey, I went to see the doctor. He's not worried about the cough, but he's like get, having me see another doctor. Right. That was the conversation. Got it. Okay. And what year was this? Well, yeah, Brian was 37. So that was 2017. Okay. So how is he doing today? Well, today, Brian is mostly wheelchair bound, and he is struggling to be able to speak clearly, um, but he's doing so with um, the assistance of a, a bit of a, like a microphone device. Um, he is still using his own voice, but he, he can't move very easily, and he's lost a lot of ability. That said, we are four years into the diagnosis and about 75% of the people who were diagnosed the day we were are dead. So wow. at the end of the day, we are struggling, but we are also very grateful to be among the very few people who are still alive. That's pretty extraordinary to, to know that. How does he, from a mental health standpoint, how is he doing Brian is a very driven, um, positive person. I, I wouldn't say optimist because I think at times that suggests uh, some level of naivete and that is not how Brian operates. He is both a realist and optimist while being very driven. And so we have thrown ourselves into doing absolutely everything um, within our power to partner with others to change the course of this disease. So what does your day typically look like for you specifically as Brian's caregiver? Yeah, well, I uh, for COVID, I was working full time. I have founded 
two different education nonprofits and was the CEO of the nonprofit I was with at the time. I had been there in that role as CEO for five years. And then in October, I stepped down from the organization because ultimately over the course of the pandemic, uh, Brian went from being able to move and walk with some assistance to the disease accelerating a bit more rapidly and becoming um, pretty disabled. And ultimately I could not um, navigate what I wanted and needed to do to support Brian and leading uh, my nonprofit. And so after stepping down um, from my role as CEO, I have really focused on the advocacy work that we do, and then of course the caregiving support. It's been a journey. Right. Do you have? Does anyone help out? Whether it's family or, or I'm not sure if you have professional caregivers that come in as well. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, there are probably so many people in this position who find themselves caregiving without a professional background in caregiving, and none of us ever expected or wanted to be in this position. For us, the reason why I have become the primary caregiver to Brian is perhaps similar to why others have and and different from from yet other people, but it is because during COVID, um, we did not feel comfortable with caregivers coming in and out of our home and um, the potential risks of exposure to COVID. Brian's respiratory capacity is um, somewhere around 60%. And so for someone like Brian, and the risk of COVID is pretty significant. And so we decided that I would do what I could to manage it sort of in our bubble um, until things changed. So yeah, that is that's an extraordinary additional challenge that you would never have have banked on having a, a pandemic like this um, and, and suddenly having Brian uh, get worse right in the middle of it. Absolutely. And I, I read a recent very powerful New York Times piece about parents of um, children with severe physical disabilities and illnesses who found themselves in the same situation. And sometimes it was because they didn't want to take the risks and they made the same calculations our family did. And at other times they were facing what was a home caregiving shortage given um, the demands that the COVID pandemic put on the healthcare sector and on nurses um, in general. So for lots of reasons, many families found themselves in similar situations and um, it was very challenging. So as we've now been vaccinated and and others are getting vaccinated, I've begun to partner with one other individual who has been essentially tag teaming caregiving responsibilities with me. So I can get breaks and and they can get breaks because at the end of the day, um, Brian does need support from the moment he wakes up until the moment he falls asleep. And that's, that's not a one person job. Right. So aside from the caregiving duties that you've taken on, just in terms of caring 
for yourself and still paying attention to you as a whole person. Do you ever ask for help from others so that you have time to tend to that aspect? You know, I know many people, even if they're not dealing with a condition like ALS, many people have a hard time asking for help uh, just from others just in general. Do you find that that's difficult for you um, given the situation that you're in? I mean, I always ask for help. Well, good. I, <laughs> I ask for help more than the average person asks for help, whether they have uh, caregiving responsibilities or not. <laughs> I'm very. We, we can all take a lesson from you then. That's good. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe, maybe not. But I lean on other people a lot. I ask the people in my life for a lot. My love language is acts of service. So uh, I am most touched and moved by when and how the people in my life help me <laughs> out right. and help me manage um, what is now a tremendously difficult ordeal. Um, I think that asking for help during COVID was quite challenging. There were so many people who wanted to help um, and I was restricted by the protocol we were following um, in accepting their help. And so the world for us has just started to, to open back up again. But um, I mean, absolutely. I asked for help 24 seven. That's, that is great. I mean, it's, it can be hard though, you know, to, to let other people in, especially if you feel like, you know, I know a lot of people out there might feel like they're the only ones who can really handle the situation, but um, it's good that you can, <laughs> you have a network that, that you don't mind turning to. That's great. Um, yeah. I mean, well, certainly there are things about navigating caregiving support for an ALS patient that, you know, give you pause um, in terms of stepping away. So for example, Brian on several occasions has had choking scares. And oh so you do consider, all right, if I'm going to leave the house for two hours, who is with Brian and is the person with Brian equipped and prepared to handle and like successfully resolve a potential choking situation, right? So um, it's never straightforward. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm certainly not shy in asking for help, but then navigating how and when the help folds in is always complex. Certainly. When it comes to taking care of yourself, again, as a, as a whole person, do you have any go-to ways that you sort of lean on, whether that's taking your care of yourself physically or emotionally? Well, I'm, I think I took this silly test and well, Brian scored as a 100% extrovert. I scored as a 60% introvert. And so uh, I actually really benefit from just being alone. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like just literally like under my gravity blanket, like staring at the ceiling, just decompressing. Like I just, I just need to reset. And I don't need a massage. I don't need a manicure. I just need alone time. And that is certainly hard to come by. Um, and so I truthfully have not been great at taking care of myself over the course of the last year and a half. It has felt like a nice thing to hear from people um, suggesting that I do so, but in an effort to just survive ALS and this pandemic, it's been 
nearly impossible to do much of the time. Oh my, because you were, I'm sure you were also taking care of your, your kids as well, since school was not on the table and you still had, you had to, you had to be there for them as well. Yeah. So for our three-year-old actually today uh, was a huge, huge day because she was in a Montessori program before COVID. And then um, she's literally not been in a school or camp setting since COVID began. And today was her first day of summer camp and she could barely calm herself down to fall asleep last night because today was her first day of school she called it and so you know the the level of isolation and like the brutality of that level of isolation for young children who have parents who are immunocompromised has been unbelievable and so I've also, you know, you suffer watching your baby suffer while other families have been in a position to be more relaxed and that kids can play outside and what have you. Um, Our kids have been very isolated. And so the joy that I had this morning taking my three-year-old to summer camp and truly like it being her first interaction in a group school or camp setting in a year and a half. I just like, I can't even say how much that means to us. That is so exciting. Gosh. Um, But that sounds, I mean, that sounds doubly exhausting for you (laughs) to have to have taken care of your keeping your family afloat on all fronts for the last year and a half or so. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly, to your point, I have, you know, asked for help and taken it where possible. So our families have done a really heroic job of um, kind of bubbling with us and helping where they, they can. So Brian's mom, uh, had just recently retired from, um, you know, being a, a career attorney in the government um, when we were diagnosed and she sold her home in DC and she moved to the area. And during COVID, she essentially bubbled with us for, you know, the entirety of that time and has taken on a great deal of the tag teaming support with childcare with me, um, with ALS in particular, um, keeping your weight on is very important. Um, Mm -hmm. The disease in some ways, it makes you like burn your calories faster or um, it's harder to keep your weight up. And so she's taken on the lion's share of the cooking and helping Brian keep his weight on. Um, And so my mother-in-law has played a huge role in helping us in a number of ways. My parents are both working full time, but, you know, any moment that they're able to on the weekends or whatnot, um, they, they support our family. And, you know, we actually, after getting diagnosed, um, were living in the city and we decided to move closer to my parents in the suburbs of Chicago. And the way we decided uh, which house to buy was literally what house was on the market um, that was as close to my parents as possible. And so <laughs> it was a very sophisticated real estate search um, yes. that resulted in uh, making an offer on the house four doors down from my mom and dad. <laughs> wow. So, 
every weekend our girls pack up their mini suitcases and they roll them down four doors and uh, arrive after a long journey at my mom and dad's house for um, a, a night stay um, to, to sort of give Brian and I a moment to, to catch our breath. Right. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad that you can, you have such a strong uh, network of folks around you. That's really wonderful for you and for your girls. That's great. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, do you feel like people get what you're going through. Uh, what is it that you wish they knew about your experience as a caregiver? I think it's um, really hard to comprehend what this feels like unless you go through it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that there's any version of an explanation that would have registered with me pre-diagnosis, what this experience is like. Um, but I, I think, um, I think people understand that in some ways you live in an alternative reality. You don't, you don't go on camping trips or, you know, like, take a hike as a family. You don't easy breezy, like decide to do a family bike ride, right? Like all the normalcy of life without a significant disability, without a significant illness, without, you know, this significant burden. It's just, it's, it's beyond reach for most of us. I, I, I would say. Um, and I see people like wanting to bring me into their, their realm of reality. And like, I occasionally like dip a toe back into it. Um, but most of the time I feel like we're just in a different zone. Is there something you could say to someone that would really encapsulate your experience or something that you wish that they would just remember about what your life has to be like right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I was nervous when we were diagnosed that people might not get it or come through for us in the ways we needed. And I've been so so surprised in the best of ways with how people have come through. Uh, I think ultimately it's that your life is so complex and challenging to navigate that when you make an ask of someone, it's exactly what you need, right? Like you don't need it to be like what you asked for minus or plus X or Y. You like literally just need whoever you asked <laughs> to help you with exactly what you need, exactly the way you asked for it. So that's something I think is important for, for people who are trying to help caregivers here um, because you know, caregivers lie awake at night trying to map out exactly how to make their lives function. Um, and they understand all the interdependencies of this puzzle. And when they make an ask of someone outside of their little bubble, they know exactly what they need. And so in supporting a caregiver, being able to at the ready, just respond to exactly what 
they said they need help with exactly in the way that they need that help is really important. Right. You've already done all the thinking and all the planning. You just need someone to execute <laughs> what you're yes, asking. I don't, yeah, I don't need a thought partner. Trust me. All I do yep. is think about it. <laughs> <laughs> you are the ultimate expert. So <laughs> what you yeah. say should go. Yes, yes. Well, you've talked about having family close by, fortunately, and, and people who've been able to step in, um, even with the limitations of the pandemic. But on the other hand, did you have people who kind of vanished from your lives after Brian's diagnosis because they didn't know what to say, they didn't know what to do? Um, and, and what do you wish, perhaps, if there are those people, what do you wish they had done instead? There are only a few of them. Um, I've been very grateful that they have been few and far between. But as any uh, caregiver can tell you, you remember, yep. <laughs> you don't forget. <laughs> um, it really, it does hurt. Even if it's only a couple people, it does hurt. Um, and it doesn't have to be anything sophisticated. It can just be, I heard the news, my heart is with you. Um, I am thinking about you. It doesn't, it really doesn't have to be anything beyond an acknowledgement of, of pain and uh, of whatever particular tragedy you're going through. Mm -hmm. I think people, and I've, I've, I've experienced this as well, you know, it feels like nothing that you can say would really make a difference or it would be something that someone has heard before, but it sounds like it's still important to say it, even if it's nothing, you know, amazingly, unique or helpful. Absolutely. You just want people to acknowledge that you were hit by a bus, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. to not reach out after you're hit by a bus is like, <laughs> guys, I was just hit by a bus. Like <laughs> you could pick up the phone or you could send me a text message. Um, so, but I, I do, I, I do feel very, very, very like lucky that that is truly a few and far between situation. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have received um, in large part sort of this opposite reaction, which is that people who maybe we were friends with, but not even as close friends with in the past, we've become much closer with because our friends have dug in mostly, they've dug in much deeper with us. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very good to hear. Do yeah. you have any advice to other people who suddenly find themselves caring for a loved one, whether it's a condition like ALS or another condition? Um, is there any piece of advice that you think would have helped you when you were starting down this path? Well, you know, Brian is a very positive person, as I mentioned, but, um, he's been told that he's gonna die, you know, before 40, around 40, like he's losing all of his capabilities. So anyone who's told something like that is, it's very painful. And even though Brian is so driven and so energetic, there are times when he is sad and he is angry at the disease, but as his caregiver, 
I'm the one who might be the recipient of that anger. And I think that's very hard for caregivers because you're doing everything you can to keep your person alive. And they're in the most incredible pain that is imaginable. And then they direct that anger towards you and it just, it can break you. Yeah, even if you know it's not, even if you were to think about it and you know it's not at you, it probably feels in the moment like, well, what else am I supposed to do? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so just taking a moment to step away and call a friend or call a family member because you need to be reminded in those moments that that's not real, right? That that your person like is not blaming you. They're just in an incredible amount of pain. Right. Do you have to find outlets for when you're dealing with grief or frustration or anger? Um, I don't know if you have to, if you feel like you have to be careful expressing those around Brian or if you have to find another way to sort of let it go. You know, it's interesting when we were diagnosed and I don't know, even sometimes I get this advice, like, don't, don't tell Brian, like, don't bring him down. Don't make him sad. And that is some of the worst advice that I've gotten. I, um, I find that, um, Brian and I work best when I'm open with him about, my moments or phases of deep grief where I feel like hope might be slipping through my fingers. I, I need to be able to communicate my highs and lows with him openly. And if I don't, in many ways, it isolates us from one another because then we're not operating as a unit. And so, I I certainly don't know how every other couple or caregiver, you know, works and everybody's different. But for me, I learned that I need to be open with Brian about how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And that helps us both get through it. Before we let you go, I'd love for you to tell us about the nonprofit that you and Brian founded, which is called I Am ALS. What are your goals for this group? Yeah, well, we founded I Am ALS over two years ago, and it has already helped generate $83 million in government funding for ALS. Wow. So it is That's truly... Amazing. Yes, it is the ice bucket challenge that nobody knows about outside (laughs) of our community in some instances. And we were able to accomplish that by this incredible army of patients and caregivers who we provided a platform for action and some support and they took it from there. And so um, it's truly one of the most remarkable feats in community organizing um, that is happening right now with the ALS community. And our current focus is is very centered on getting ALS patients access to treatments. And so while you noted that there are no meaningful FDA approved treatments, there are sort of two uh, currently approved treatments that marginally um, slow the disease, but there are 
more promising treatments in the pipeline for ALS patients that are facing bureaucratic hurdles at the FDA. Mm. And while (laughs) bureaucracy runs its slow course, people are dying. And this is a moment very much like the HIV community found itself in where patients and caregivers need to speak up and let the FDA and other critical players know that we need to operate differently. This is a disease with urgency. And um, these two therapies that have been slowed need to be approved and patients need access now. Right. I think I was reading recently where the FDA recently approved that drug for Alzheimer's. And I, I was reading about the, the ALS community's response to that approval, seeing as how there was, I think there was kind of the evidence was a little weaker than, than usual. I'm not sure if that's exactly correct details, but I'm curious if, if you have been watching that story with hopeful eyes for what it might mean for these ALS treatments. Absolutely. And we need to see the FDA apply the same standards to the ALS therapies. In fact, one of the two therapies that the ALS community is asking for approval of met its endpoints, right? It met the requirements that FDA expects of a therapy and trial, and yet it has not been approved for patients. And so the FDA needs to explain how they square a decision like that with one that has approved an Alzheimer's drug, which did not meet all of the endpoints in the same manner. And so there is both this drug, AMX0035, from a company called Amelix, and there's a second drug uh, called Neuron, which is a stem cell therapy, which did uh, show improvement um, or impact with a subset of patients and should be granted partial approval for the subset of patients it helped. And so ultimately, we need to see FDA give patients access to therapies that have met these bars of efficacy. Where can people go uh, to find out more about your organization and all the work that you're doing? It would be tremendous to have as much support as possible to mobilize action in these two areas. So if you have even 10 seconds in your day, if you go to imals.org, there is a very quick auto form you can fill out to request that FDA come before Congress and explain its decisions on these two therapies that ALS patients are dying waiting for. And uh, it is a very straightforward, quick way for anyone listening to have an impact um, and to show Congress that this matters, that this is a community of people who deserve a chance to live, who deserve access to therapies. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Sandra Abravaya, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us today and our best wishes to you and to Brian as you guys continue through this journey together. Thank you so much. Thank you for shedding light on this. This disease will change course. It will turn from terminal to chronic, but only if 
everybody listening today cares and engages, and there are such easy ways to engage. So please do join us at imals.org. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hope everyone has a great week, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.